Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, Achtung, which is, of course, German for Achtung, Achtung. <laughs> Look, when we when we set out doing this podcast, we didn't we didn't know if we'd be back the following week. So I think we've done pretty well <laughs> with the languages. Thank you very much. We are, of course, recording this in the week that commemorates the 75th anniversary of the German surrender. Or is it surrenders? So it's only right they get um, that they get to shout out the alarm in the tongue of the fatherland. Uh, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the podcast that proves conclusively VE Day was barely even the beginning of the end of the Second World War. <laughs> uh, thanks to all of you for your emails, your tweets, your questions, and thank you for joining us during an epic three and a half hours plus rendition of A Bridge Too Far on the telly yesterday. Um, we received 2,946 comments. That's more people than were landed in first parachute brigade <laughs> on on d-day of operation market garden during the film i'm amazed that you had um you had a chance to even watch anthony hopkins call for the pit uh, uh, it was stupendous wasn't it james it was absolutely brilliant i had quite a lot of is it still going and and quite, quite yeah. a lot of when does it finish and, and, oh, and yeah. comments well, like that but yeah. then then rachel turned into kind of 1950s housewife it was just completely brilliant first of all i got a cup of tea and two chocolate brownies on a plate not one but two <laughs> and then a little bit later on in came a bowl of popcorn i was just sat there with my kind of feet up on the sofa uh, and then and then came a, a, a glass of spate burgunder i mean what's not to like well you you i had a i had a teen a dozing teen who'd wake up and go Oh, it's still, it's still going on, is it? And get, go back to sleep. So, and she'd said, "I really need to see this because she'd watch." It's Willow, who I watched Band of Brothers with, and I said, "Well, that you know, it kind of ties in with that because there's the there's Son, and you know, that's where Easy Company were and all that." But uh, she still managed to she still managed to nod off. Um, the, Even that, so, that, I have got, I've got great hope for Willow, though. I mean, you know, she's a company due to oh. Hamburg. She's watched Band of Brothers. Yep. Now she's oh yeah, half yeah, yeah. watched half those. Oh yeah, she's. You know she's getting good. Oh no, she's she's getting good at all this. She's she's being gradually brainwashed, like a, like one of those people captured in the Korean War who then returned returned to Glasgow, a revolutionary communist, ten years later. Anyway, <laughs> um, but the striking thing though is, although although it's a, it's a little long, the striking thing with that film is the scenes. Once you've had all the exposition of what the operation's going to be, which is chiefly baloney, yeah, right. Once you get once you get into the drops. That whole sequence that, 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 you know, when they when they prep the aircraft and then when they drop on <clears throat> on Arnhem and Nijmegen and Eindhoven, it is stupendous filmmaking. Yes. Uh, and yeah, I completely agree with that because I was gnashing my teeth with frustration. At all the, you know, flipping it. I mean, I, I just wanted a punch fuller. I mean, what a snivelling wimp. Honestly. <laughs> Honestly, it was just it was hopeless. All this sort of wobbly bottom lip and stuff and sort of but but. Sir, you know, there might be some SS tax. And then, frankly, I'm, I was tightly with Boy Browning on this. You know, I'm sorry, but, you know, I know that the whole thing about the photos is a kind of whole myth anyway. But even if I had been shown pictures of, of five tanks in a hedge, so what when the next shot is 30 course steaming towards you with all those Shermans and Fireflies and Achilles and all the rest of it? You know, we're not a risk-verse environment in the Second World War. No. 
Now you were you were getting a bit of a you were getting a bit of a gear horn though during some of that, weren't you? I was I getting mean, a bit. Let's of... be honest. Oh yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. I mean yeah. that that scene, the scene where um Vandeleur and Horrocks are driving are driving through Van, through the Irish Guards. He's going, well, I obviously I've got a bit of a problem with it just being one road, chaps. Well, I'm sure we'll be all right, sir. All that. The sheer gear, and I'm sure they're driving around in circles and go past all the tanks three times. But I don't care. The, the, the gear horn of yeah. all those, all those fireflies, armored cars, yeah. the half tracks. I mean, it's that's there's some serious kit. Which which also makes me think. Well, why did they use leopards then? They managed to find all those Shermans. Couldn't they have rigged some stuff up as Stugs and Tigers and yeah. Anyway, I mean, why don't they just have a word with Bobbington? <laughs> I mean, well, was one three one running in? The, was it running in the seventies? I wonder. I expect all that well, gear. Was I'm running. sorry, but if you've got enough money for all of that, you've got enough money to get a tiger running. Jesus, because of course you know, <laughs> you know, things weren't as expensive in them days, so it would have been. I'm no. sure it would have been affordable. And they've had, they've certainly had it since 1945, haven't they? So well, they had it. Some British have had it since 1942. So I mean, or 43 rather. Yeah. But I mean, it's um. Yeah, I thought it was amazing. I, 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 God, the scope of the airborne drop was amazing. I mean, I looked at that for holy moly. I had, I just, I mean, of course, I've seen it before. I've seen it like five times, but and I know you've seen it a lot more than that. But, but I have seen it more than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's fair to say. But I, you know, you, I haven't seen it for a, for many a good long year, and and you know, you kind of you just, I was, I was gobsmacked. Well, because the thing is, all the, the drops in Band of Brothers are all done with CGI and, and the uh, and it shows. you know the D Day and it shows. Whereas that they're really there, and there's that really fantastic shot taken over the tail of the Dakota. Yes, where you're in the air, you're in the airstream, and you see the guys going out. Yeah, and 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 the thing where he goes out the door, that's having done it the once. That's what it's like going out <laughs> the door of, door of that bloody aeroplane. It's absolutely terrifying. The other thing I just kept thinking, well, you know, health and safety executive wouldn't allow that now, would they? Kind of lining well, up that's on, the other thing. You know, this is the and 1970s. Some of them, but some of them, yeah, and some of them are jump, jumping clean fatigue, but some of them aren't. So uh, there are jo- guys jumping with kit, which is really interesting because that's 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 where it gets dangerous with kit bags hurtling, falling off people and landing and. You landing on your kit and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so, but it's I mean, also it, quite it's dangerous. Quite... Lots of lots of Dakotas, C forty seven stacked up one after the other, taking off. <laughs> Especially when yeah. they've got got gliders on them as well. I mean, yeah, I was just thinking, yeah. it's amazing, brilliant. It's absolutely amazing, absolutely amazing the whole thing. Um, now, um, obviously, there's some I- iconic scenes in the film, and the, the the one that gets the one that came up that got a lot of discussion was the we haven't got for the facilities to take you prisoner. Now, um. I have got John Frost's memo, a, a, a memoir, a drop too many. He talks about this in specific, right? And I'll just, I'll just read a bit because I know that the independent company will like this. There was a considerable discussion as to who should be the military advisor, a job that meant being involved with the film for six months. In the event, Colonel John Waddy was given the necessary leave by his firm, Westland, the helicopter, make, helicopter makers. He was an ideal choice, blah, 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 blah. As I knew that I would be involved as a consultant for the bridge sequences, I was most anxious to see the script before it was finalised. I'd been told that the script was the filmmaker's bible and once it was fixed, it could not be undone. As the time of filming, that's that's in order to shut him up. Uh, as the time, because of course, <laughs> film, films, film scripts changed like permanently. As the, as the time of filming approached and I was still uninformed, I became more and more anxious. It then so happened that in February 1976, I was invited to lunch by the Prime Minister Harold Wilson at Number 10 Downing Street. The Dutch cabinet were visiting and it was thought that I could help to amuse them. 
After lunch, Lady Falkender, the Prime Minister's famous press secretary, approached me and said, I hear you'll be concerned with the film A Bridge Too Far. The Prime Minister is very keen that we should do all we can to help. Have you anything to suggest? I then told her about our difficulties in getting a look at the script and she said she was sure that she could arrange things. Two days later, my copy arrived. I mean... That's his version of events. I bet he went, they haven't fucking told me what's coming. Mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rather, rather than her going, oh, do, do, I understand you're involved in this. I mean, this is amazing. Um, well, well knowing of how the views of American scriptwriters and film producers differ from our own more un- mundane outlook, I was agreeably surprised as far as the bridge, bridge chapters went. I had only one adamant objection, here we go, to the treatment given to an incident where the Germans sent one of our own captured sappers back to me with a message to the effect that, as we are in such a hopeless position, would I personally meet the German commander under a flag of truce to discuss surrender? I said, tell them to go to hell. Sergeant Hallowell, the sapper, replied, do I really have to go back and tell them? I answered, no, it's up to you. If you'd like to stay and continue fighting, they will get the message anyway. He stayed. So that's the instant this is based on. The film script, however, demanded that I, or rather the actor playing me, should actually meet the German general and tell him that I had no room for him or his soldiers to, uh, as prisoners, and so you'd have to continue fighting. Magnificent cinema, perhaps, but so divorced from reality that it was laughable. In the end, a very unsatisfactory and most unrealistic compromise was reached, in which one of my officers sarcastically informed the Germans that we could not accept their surrender. A few years later, when I asked Major General Heinz Harmel, the GOC of 10th SS Panzer Division, what he and the Germans thought of the film, he mentioned this particular episode as being quite ridiculous. There you are. <laughs> well, there you go. I don't, actually, yeah. and there's that great line about Anthony Hopkins, and he's asked her kind of what he thought about the playing the part of him. And yeah. He says, I can't remember, yeah. I was pissed the whole time. Yeah. Well, there's the story as well that 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 um, where there's that scene where Frost is running from building to building, and Frost took Hopkins to one side. So you don't run, you walk. You walk briskly because your men your men can't see that you're scared, but you've got to walk briskly so you do show that some concern for your own safety, but not too much. And and uh, Hopkins and uh, Attenborough said, "Ah, no, you got to run. It's, it's stupid. The idea of you walking is ridiculous." I mean, it it it. it it's it's just amazing that, that I went to Deventer in Holland for my stint as a consultant during the lovely month of May 1976. When I arrived on the set, Anthony Hopkins was dressed up to look like me and was commanding my battalion with cameras and arc lights in full support. It was an odd feeling, not at all pleasant. I felt very, very passé. The fact that I held the stage a long, long time ago was forcibly brought home now. I did not feel at all in tune with the actor. Indeed, I almost disliked him and I believe that this was mutual. I was sure that I was putting him off and suggested this to Richie Attenborough, who would have none of it, insisted on me remaining on the set. Filmmaking is a long and tedious business with endless rehearsal, rearrangement, correction and repetition. As Richie himself said over and calls him Richie and over and over and over again. But gradually one could see it all taking shape and I almost began to feel myself in the actor's place. The more familiar his face and figure became, the more I came to accept him. I mean, it, yeah, incredible, isn't it? Incredible, and, and and clear that you know he just obviously felt really uncomfortable about the whole thing, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Well, it is peculiar that you make that within people's within people's lifetimes. It's a peculiar thing to do, isn't it? Because because yeah. because he then goes on to say that you know you get Warwick and and Tatham Water get merged into that major Carlisle character mm. because 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 you know Tatham Water 
you know, with the umbrella, he didn't die. He was part of the escape attempt, you know, the, yeah, the yeah, yeah. O- Operation Pegasus later and all that sort of stuff. I mean, anyway, uh, uh, it was great fun watching it there, wasn't it? And it, to be amongst so many other um, afflicted idiots like ourselves was really quite special. I'll tell you what, though, didn't <laughs> I think, though, that, um, uh, Larry was good, wasn't he? Oh, he's very good. I mean, you know, he's deservedly he's gets its plaudits. I mean, uh, he was absolutely yeah. magnificent in that. Yeah. Is great. that a Dutch accent? Is, is that a Dutch accent, or is it Laurence Olivier? Laurence Olivier will, can do what he damn well chooses. He can do what he damn a well chooses, like... but he was brilliant. But he spoke in German. <laughs> he spoke in Dutch. I thought that was quite impressive. Um, it's very, very, very Neil as Gavin. You know, it was a bit difficult, wasn't it? That bit. It's just, you know, I just couldn't believe it. Is this kind of sort of, you know, Brits are all crap and, and kind of, you know, any yeah. commanders are all rubbish, but all Americans yeah. just see logic clearly and kind of can see a way through. And, and, and you know, the, 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 the terrible injustice of having Ryan O'Neill kind of screaming his head off, or, or was it Robert yeah. Redford screaming his head off about the lack of thrust from the yeah. guards? Apparently, when apparently we know the he, truth. Well, and apparently, apparently, um, Julian Cook was very unhappy with Robert Redford playing him and all that sort of stuff. I mean, the Bailey Bridge scene is absurd as well. Whether you got, where you've got someone from para, a parachute infantry regiment guy who suddenly knows how to build a Bailey Bridge. All these sappers like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> and the whole off, James Kahn scene. I mean, what was that all about? Yeah. I mean, how on earth well, did I that German not see him? He was staring straight at him, and he was in a freaking jeep. Know. I don't know. I mean, the, the thing is, is obviously that, that that's in there for drama and you don't get you don't get the used to be pocket apart from that, that that medic going. What we've decided to do is form a thumb shaped pocket, which is attached to the bottom of the river, which would be very good for reinforcement for when 30 Corps get here. I mean, I mean, yeah, all right. But I mean, I don't know. It, it, it is it is a great movie, if only for the sort of scale, the sheer ambition and scale of that. You couldn't do that now, could you? You couldn't. No. You wouldn't. No, I'll tell you the bits I particularly love was the whole um, uh, Roy Urquhart kind of um, skedaddling around and escape and all the rest of it, particularly because, you know, we were there last year and and walking that exact same ground. It was fantastic. You know, you could really picture it it and everything. You you can completely picture it. And, uh, you know, it's real enough, that neighbourhood, they have them running around in the movie. It's as as like the the actual place. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so so peculiar to think that, that... you can just run up that alley and it's the same. And uh, yeah, although they did, I don't, I don't think they had the dormer or the mansard or whatever. That, I can never, never, which, never remember which loft extensions which. But I like your little, <laughs> I like your little video that you posted up as well. That was really, really good to see that again. You know, just uh, yeah. I mean, it's just fascinating. It just made me think. You know, we we have at some point, some day, got to do that book out. Yeah. All right. On the subject of books, though, James. Yes. We gave a book away, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, we did. Well, we, yeah, yeah. And well done to James Scott, who uh, won the copy of my uh, Battle of Britain special edition, signed by six RAF pilots and six Luftwaffe men, all of whom fought in the battle. And, um, you know, it's quite weird because, you know, I, we did that quite a long time ago, um, back in, in 2009. Yeah. And I haven't really looked at it since, if I'm honest. Um, you know, because you, you got it and you put it on the shelf and there it is, or they stay in a box somewhere. So actually, to look yeah. out and look at all those, partic- I mean, you know, Jeff Wellham, Tom Neal, Pete Brothers, etc. You know, they're all absolute legends, of course. But I have yeah. all those Knights Cross winners with oak leaves and swords and stuff. I mean, it was um, they, they were, you know, they're, they're some of the some of the greatest there. How much? Um, here's a question, right? The show I did in 2009, the stand-up show I did in 2009, because I te- I write one every other year, right? And then I tour it for 18 months, and by the end of it, um, 
it's either permanently burnished in my mind forever and there's nothing I can't escape the the logic of the routine yeah or I ne- I cannot bear I cannot remember it at all because my mind has cast it out completely right um there's there's since 2009 I think I've written five stand-up shows right and I can only remember I can only remember the last one I did all the others have been they've been just gone dumped They've been dumped. Whereas the stuff from 20, there's a show, two shows from like 20, 20, 20 years ago that I could do for you tomorrow. If you let, let me, sat me alone with my lists for long enough, I could, I could regurgitate the show from 99 quite easily. And the one from 90, in fact, that's longer ago than 20. Anyway, but the point yeah, is, how funny? much of it, how much of it do you jettison? How much of it, um, you know, do you fire, do you bury it? See mentally, as it were. Okay. <laughs> well, I um most of it. I just said so. The whole kind of sort of filing cabinet of the brain process is that you do have a reordering, you know. So you know when you're doing Sicily, all you're thinking about is Sicily, and you know all those sort of stats and facts come come straight back. What I find about previous projects is there's certain ones which kind of just keep coming back for TV or coming up in yep. conversation or whatever. So so those sort of stats just come sort of rolling off quite easily i find that once once i've once i've got to grips of a subject i absolutely hold on to the bare the the basics yeah Uh, and you know the the precise detail is what goes but it's really really you know i only have to look in a moleskin and a notebook or kind of check some stats or whatever and it's it's straight it's straight back it goes back to the forefront again yeah so my my hazy bits of the war are the war which are, are the bits that i haven't studied in depth for a book where I, you right. know I've, I've read about everything about the war but i haven't or, or the whole breadth of the war rather not everything but the breadth yeah. of the war but there's quite a lot of bits that i forget you know so you know the end of the war in the far east for example i'm much more hazy on that than i am on yeah, yeah. other stuff because i haven't actually written about it yeah yeah so the key is but to d- just write about everything right <laughs> Because the because I mean because the, the scope in the in 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 the Battle of Britain book uh, where we talked about this before is is you d- you do do from the the progress of the war from thirty nine from thirty nine to to the start of what's regarded as the Battle of Britain. There's all that you know Battle of France stuff, Fall of yeah. France stuff that that very often wouldn't wouldn't go into one of those accounts at all. And um, is that the core stuff for you that you've retained, or is that that's yeah. that's core war in? But that's core war in the West, anyway, isn't it? Is the, it, is the it truth? It is. But I've got I've got quite a good. I think I've got a pretty good good handle now on, on kind of sort of. Uh, th- there's definitely a kind of sort of another file folder in my brain, which is loads and loads of use, useless statistics to anyone but me, um, yeah. uh, and I can kind of roll those off. I can't remember someone's face or their name particularly, but I can remember. Yeah. Um, how many landing craft the British manned on D-Day, for example? So it's it's kind yeah, of it's yeah, a yeah. sort of weird thing, and and statistics about aircraft production in July 1940. I, I don't know why I can remember it, but I just can. Um, but I've got an interesting <laughs> one coming up because you know I'm supposed to be doing War in the West Volume Three, and yep. the big problem is is that 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 two years, two years, two years each book. So the new one really goes from June 1943. But obviously, I've written about Sicily. I've written about the the. the so air you've got war. a lot of. O- a lot of overlap. Yeah, so my thinking about it is, and obviously I've written about Normandy and I've written a lot about Italy. So my, my what I'm thinking of doing is doing kind of a third 1943 to 44 and two thirds post-Normandy to the end of the war. Because that's the bit well, that, I know least about. And I think that would be really, really well, interesting. It's the bit everyone knows the least about. It's the right. bit that, you know, because yeah. after all, Arnhem and the Battle of the Bulge are the only two things that happen after D-Day. 
in, in sort of the popular consciousness, aren't they? Yeah. And what's interesting about both of them is they're allied reverses, aren't they? And um, yeah. that's, I think, why they register in people's minds. And of course, the, you know, the, the bulges, the bulges are reversed that's then rever- in itself reversed and, and heroically, yeah. which is why it sticks in people's minds. And we, we, we talked about, when we talked, to Guy, which which is the, which will be on on Thursday, ladies and gentlemen. We talked to Guy yeah. Walters again about about the Second World War and it's how, where it exists in our sort of national cultural imagination, as it were. A lot of the a lot of the way this history gets told is which story would you rather tell about yourselves, and uh, 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 and <laughs> do you, would you rather tell the story of the Hurtgen Forest and the sort of grinding bitter battle or the grinding bitter bitter battle in the Reichswald that 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 um, Second Army Group? This, this is a very similar story where basically. That they're, they're, they're tritting out these platforms in order to be able to then cross the Rhine. Uh, is that which is a better, which is a more interesting story, Arnhem and the Battle of the Bulge, or this sort of massive, massive grinding war machine stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, 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 yeah. you know what I mean? And I think, I think, I, I, I mean, I for one can't, ra- I can't wait to read about, uh, uh, you know, re- read a book that actually tells you what happens. After Arnhem, because the she- the Scheldt clearance, the Valkyrie yeah. uh, operation yeah. is colossal. Yeah. It's another it's another epic amphibious landing. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the Allies go, oh, well, we'll do we'll do another great big D-Day style landing. If that's what we've got to do, go round them, whatever. And it's that again, it's that thing of Allied naval power, which is so preponderant that they can they can switch on a landing like that at short notice. I mean, it's that it's all and in and in the wrong time of year, in rotten weather, and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't get written about, you know. And no, uh, it doesn't. Arnhem's, and it does, it needs Arnhem, it. Arnhem's exciting because it's a last stand and a defeat. The bulge is exciting because it's because again it's a last stand and a heroic rescue. They do, like he says in like Fox says the cavalry riding to their rescue that actually happens in the Battle of the Bulge. The cavalry but, do ride. But have to you ever been to Arkan, for example? I mean, Arkan is is also that's a hell of a battle. You know, that's the first. Yeah, um, so long. I've, I've been there, but so long ago. So long ago. I don't. I I, I remember it as a town with a spire <laughs> <laughs> and Charlemagne. European, I mean, it's, European it's, city with a spire. It does all need joining up. You know, there's 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 yeah, um, the ninth U.S. Ninth Army and and, and Bill Simpson and, and that amazing battle yep. of the Ruhr Pocket and there's obviously Varsity, the the single largest airborne drop which we've touched on before. You know, there's all yeah. these things that you know it's this sort of brutal fighting. So anyway, but but the problem I've got is is that at the moment I can't do my research that I need to do. So because yeah, you so can't I, get out, I can't. So actually, I've been thinking about it, and it's actually quite a long time ago that that Band of Brothers was written. And it's quite a long yep. time ago now, actually, t- since the TV. And what's really interesting about those Ambrose books is, is, obviously, you know, he was pioneering because no one had done a book like that before. And that that's yeah, yeah. why one of the reasons why it deserves its its place in history. But actually, I mean, if I was going to write that book, I'd write it in a very, very different way. I, I, I don't think it's, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to sound rude, but I, I, don't, I don't think it's that good a book, if I'm honest. Uh, and... <laughs> And and so I've suddenly hit this idea to do um, the Sherwood Rangers, not from 1939 and all through the desert and the Keith Douglas bit, but from D-Day through to the end of the war, because I think that will yep. that will set me up for War in the West three, but it will also. It's a smaller book, a much smaller book, and I've just done two whoppers. Um, yeah. uh, and to have a smaller book before I go to War in the West Three, there's no rush on this at all. Um, I think it'd be really good, and, I've, and, and my aim would be to make it much more Ernie Pyle than than Stephen Ambrose, and make it very kind of elegiac yeah. and and really hopefully moving as as possible, you know, as it possibly can be 
absolutely get to the nitty gritty of tank warfare, but just follow me. I and mean, I've got something like 17 individuals that I can follow already from the Sherwood Rangers that I've either interviewed or have been interviewed in the past or who've written books, memoirs, yeah. diaries and stuff. So that, that's that's enough, I think, on, on which to do it. And I think I think that could that could really work. Well, I'd, I'll read it in, into a microphone, obviously, for money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously. OK, so we're starting to talk now. <laughs> right but, but it could to, be good couldn't it yeah i think i think that would be fantastic because the other the, the the you know it, it it's the transition from from the army that lands in normandy that that hasn't really that's a new army really it's got old old elements in it but by the time it gets to the baltic is is ruthlessly professional and people kind of don't, ruthlessly don't, professional but in the, in the case of Sherwood Rangers they're a bit broken I mean one, one of the legends yeah. of the Sherwood Rangers yeomanry is John Semkin who I was lucky enough to interview and he was just absolutely amazing guy um, but he was a squadron commander the moment that Stanley Christofferson took over command of the regiment on 10th 11th of June whenever it was and yeah. he's involved in that amazing action on the Roray Ridge where Sergeant Dring takes out five tanks in this action. The infantry yeah. have buggered off and, and and he just goes, right, I've got this opportunity to take the Roray Ridge. This is what we're supposed to do. I'm just going to go for it. And they very, very yeah. nearly get it, but they do take the Roray Village. And anyway, he's he's this, you know, he is this, this solid post, this sort of foundation block of the Sherwood Rangers who's just been in it forever and has kept going. In March yeah. 1945, yeah. he has a complete breakdown. Uh, and has to be invalided back home. He's he's absolutely spent. You know the 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 yeah. the, the, the um the, the fuel tank of bravery is has gone. Yeah, and yeah, what yeah, was completely empty, clear yeah. is when David Christopherson, my chum, Stanley's son, and I went to visit John. It was absolutely clear that he'd never got over it. That he was yeah. he, he it broke him as a man, and his life was very very different as a result of that. And I think in this book you want to get that. You want to get that kind of yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. awful cost grinding cost and attrition and the appalling tragedy and the and the just unspeakable levels of violence which is which is inflicted yeah. upon these guys yeah well i think the last uh no i, I can't remember whose book i read about that which which basically it, he starts off talking about the violence and then he ends up back to talking about the violence and what right. it does to you and tells a story of a bloke riding in a lorry and he realizes that he's sat on four dead guys that, right. that who've been stacked yeah. in the back of the lorry, and it's May 1945, and it and he's just oh 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 I'm sat I'm sat on Tomo and Wilkins or whatever, and it and it doesn't affect him anymore. Whereas he starts with them in June in 44, like being Christ, you know, I saw a bloke blown to pieces, and then by the end they're just like, it's 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 changed them forever, and I think that's really interesting. Anyway, we we have to take a break now. Um, we, we will be back shortly. I can't wait to read this book. Imagine, it's September 1944. Jim Gavin is nervously clambering up the Grosbeek Heights. He's sure he's forgotten something, but what can it be? The sky begins to darken and he opens a bottle of beer. A fine local Dutch beer. Ah, that tastes good. God damn it, he shouts his brain suddenly alive. We've forgotten to take the bridge. Men, 30 car will be here any moment. Let's go take that bridge. As soon as I finish this lovely beer. 
Now, Beer 52 didn't exist in 1944, but if it did, well, old Jim Gavin might have remembered his primary job just that little bit quicker. Beer 52 source the best craft ales from around the world and deliver them to your door. Each month they send you eight beers, and if you sign up now, you get the first case of eight craft beers for a fiver. That's right, a fiver. Just go to beer52.com talk to get your first eight beers for five pounds. There's no obligation. You can cancel any time. That's beer52.com slash talk. Hey, Jim, get a shift on, will you? We haven't got all day. Uh, welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Thank you all, uh, independent company members, for your comments on our Patreon posts. Debates included what would have happened if DDA had gone wrong. <laughs> the assassination of Heydrich, was it worth it? And were the special forces a waste of time and men? Well, uh, that all depends on how you look at it. Of course, lots of crackers in there. Um, James, I saw you, you, you got you got pretty heavily involved in those. Yeah, debates. well, the special forces one gives you pause of thought, doesn't it? I mean, it, you know, the special forces. It just depends on kind of you know what special forces they are, where they're being used, and when. You know, yeah, there's, no, was, there's no clear answer to that. If you're if you're in the DLI or if you're a Sherwood Ranger or whatever. You, is your bravery and your training any more or less a mark of who of, of what kind of person you are than the special forces people? Do, do, do you see what I mean? Yeah, are I you, think I think the thing thing about that is is it's, it's really about motivation because you know there's been all this stuff about Astro tactics and mission command and all the rest of it. And the big thing yeah. about about mission command is you are you are trying to get people to think for themselves. But to think for yourselves, you've got to be motivated. The, the point yeah. is, if you're in the special forces, you are, by very virtue of the nature of, of, of what you've joined, motivated. You have volunteered for the airborne. You have volunteered for the for yeah. the SAS, for the commandos, whatever it might be. And so, therefore, you've just got a bit more kind of skin in the whole thing. Whereas, if you're a recruit and you're in the sixth DLI, um, you might be one of those guys who's motivated, one of those sort of category B guys that I talked about a little while ago. Yeah. But equally, you're more likely to be a category C where you just want to be led. You don't want to have to think for yourself. You want to be told what to do, when to do it, keep your head down and hope you get through it. Um, so yeah. it's not a question about being more brave or not. It's really a question about, about about being able to use your initiative, I think. I think that's the key thing. And I think when you're motivated, you, you, you want to try a little bit harder. You want to be a better shot. You want to be fitter. You want to be more kind of, you know, and that just does make you a better soldier because, um, yeah. you know, when, when, you, when you then make that collectively. Um, and the other thing, of course, about it is that if you're all motivated and you're all trained, when one of you goes down, you don't have that massive gap in your capability because yeah, you're yeah, all yeah. kind of of a, of a muchness. And I think you see that time and again with the, with the airborne troops. The, the big problem with the special forces, as we've gone over hundreds of times before, is that certainly for the airborne forces, you've generally got the you know among the very best trained troops being delivered to the battle zone by the very least trained troops, and that yeah, yeah, that yeah, is yeah. a that is a kind of a square peg and a round hole yeah. or vice versa or whatever yeah, you call it yeah, yeah, yeah. that never quite gets sorted out. But but you know the the Sicily thing is really really instructive because the SRS. They come in by boat, one dead, two casualties in the whole operation, yeah. take out four kind of Italian yeah. gun batteries. Yeah. The commandos go in and take the Malati Bridge without any problem at all. You know, they then have quite a fight once they then have to hold on longer than they're supposed to, but they do actually capture it without any issue yeah. at all. Only 16% of those dropped land uh, get involved in the fight for the Primusoli Bridge. And that's yeah, just yeah. not good enough. Yeah. Only yeah. four out of 144 gliders land on their landing zones. I mean, that's just rubbish. Yeah. It's fascinating though that they, they they still survive as a as an option. Anyway, yes. we have we we have some questions. Yes, uh, Sean Sean O'Keefe, happy birthday! It says, like my own country, the Republic of Ireland, Portugal remained neutral, but does not seem to receive any flack for doing so. 
As England's oldest ally, but being ruled by Salazar's fascist dictatorship, did Portugal come under any pressure to join either side? Geographically, it would have been at least as important as Ireland in the Atlantic War. What an excellent question, yeah. packed with fa- with fascinating points. Well, the interesting thing is, is that Portugal and Britain are allies and have been allies for about 500 years. The oldest ally. The oldest and ally. So, um, yeah. and, and that is why the Peninsula War is fought, because... Britain has a base from which to fight the Peninsula War. Um, that you know, this is Corona and all the rest of it, in the lines of Torres Vedras, blah blah blah. Yeah, um, yeah. And and that hasn't gone away. But what has happened in the um, in in 1939? I think it is actually on something like the 5th of September, 1939. Yep. Britain says to Portugal, "I just want you to know, we're not expecting you to come in on our side, even though you're our ally. We're going to let you off the hook because they know that what is going to happen if Portugal comes in on on their side is that Portugal is going to become a massive drain. You know, it can't get through Spain, yeah. which is fascist yeah. now. So actually, yeah. what Britain realises is that Portugal could easily be more more hassle than it's worth. So it says, don't worry about this one. Sit it out. Sit it out. But they also realise that actually having it as a kind of neutral place where they can inject vast numbers of secret agents and spies and as an exit point is also going to be quite useful too. So rather than... Because after all, if let's say you, in, let's say you include Portugal, there's every chance that Portugal then, and there's not a lot you can do about it, falls like Norway does, say, to someone, the Germans or the... And, and then you've got, you've got... Or Spain decides, actually, no, we can't have that. Yeah. And you end up you end up denied of denied of the use of Portugal in that in that capacity in that exactly role. that so actually it's very very smart political decision making and 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 they have a kind of you know obviously supplies from Britain are still going to Portugal because Portugal's pretty poor um, and that's continuing going and and of course supplies are still going to Spain which is one of the main reasons why Spain doesn't get involved because Britain just goes you come in on Hitler's side that tap gets cut off chum. Uh, and yeah, you yeah. know, after all those years of the civil war, that's the last thing they can afford. So you know, that's why Frank yeah, yeah, out yeah. of it. Well, it's the thing we thing we talked to Dan Tobin about with the with the with the uh, tungsten. Right, exactly that. So that's why. But then what happens is in 1944, actually Portugal then does an alliance with with the United States in return for kind of um, bases and stuff. So it does finally kind of it it it. it Come comes on side. Yeah, it stops. Yeah, it's it's no longer neutral, but it obviously doesn't doesn't obviously bring any uh, any troops to the party or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, no, it's, it's a really interesting. interesting one, and that's why Lisbon is uh, not Lisbon. Um, uh, what am I called? Um, uh, yeah, Lisbon is, is is such a is such a sort of hotbed of spies and stuff. Is that is that Portu- Portugal thing at all connected to Brazil's involvement? Do you think because Brazil kind of come, Brazil kind no. of no Brazil is all to do with it. No, Brazil Brazil is all about um, shipping losses because do you remember the the second happy time, which is the beginning of 1942, yeah. when um, there's this slaughter off the off the east coast of the Americas? That's because yeah. the Americans haven't put put their shipping into any convoys, and you would think, why on earth would yeah, they yeah. do that? That's just insane. The reason they don't put it into convoys is because it's 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 really really impractical on on, yeah, on a yeah. level of, of unloading. Because if you have convoys, you've suddenly got a mass of ships all coming in at once, and then you've got a period where you've got nothing, and your stevedores are kind of sitting around twiddling their thumbs, having yeah. nothing to do, yeah. and then suddenly they've got yeah. a massive rush on. So it's not an efficient yeah. way of loading and unloading, which is why. Right. And they just think, well, you know, we don't need it over here. We're flipping miles away from U boats. But in actual fact, they do, which is why yeah. there's this second slaughter. And Brazil just thinks, holy moly, you know, this is out, out, outrageous. And also there is vast amount of pressure from the United States. Yeah, yeah. 
So they well, do, but also but also the, the classical classical American form of pressure, which is we'll well we'll build build you a factory if you come in. It's all that too, isn't it? Oh, it's totally. That yeah, sort 100%. Of, it's that sort of that what kind of American positive pressure, as it were. We'll, we'll help you yeah. out with this. We'll give you that and yes. all that, which is you know kind of what kind of what China is doing in Africa right now. Okay, um, Sam Daly with the 80th anniversary of the Katyn massacre is now in progress. Were the Poles who took part of the Warsaw Uprising four years later aware of the massacre when pinning their hopes on the advancing Soviets who stopped and let the Germans slaughter them? There's been fake news well, forever, but there's lots and yeah. lots of fake news, particularly from the Germans and the Soviet Union. So when the Germans yeah. discover what's happened, they make massive play out of it. Yeah. When yeah. the Germans then go back into Smolensk in the spring of 1943 and get the Smolensk pocket back, um, the Soviet Union, the Red Army, they then go, I can't even begin to believe that you would have believed what the Nazis said. That's absolutely yeah. rubbish. It was the Nazis what did it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the thing is, the thing is, is... is, is yeah, the Soviets did do the Katyn massacre, but it's entirely believable that it's a thing that the Nazis would have done. It fits. You know, the, 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 and this is the problem when you've got two essentially homicidal totalitarian regimes. You go, well, they, you know, they rounded a load of people up and killed them. Well, yeah, you know, that's the way things have been done by both sides in this part of the world. I mean, the really, the really grim thing is, is that is all the thing of the of the uh, pistol hammer mark on the casings that they found that, that it's this it's basically one pistol one guy one of stalin's top um uh assassins i can't remember his name well, and he's you know, killing 22,000 yeah. or whatever it, yeah Horrible. he works his way through tons of people by him by not not just him but it's all part of the soviets demolishing poland and trying to remove it from existence after all because because Stalin, Stalin didn't like the Polish state, didn't believe it should exist, so was killing the officers. The you know basically purging it the, in the way he would any any recalcitrant Soviet colony, basically. Yeah, wasn't it? That, 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 yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. what you've got going on there. There's also um, I don't know if you, if you have you are you a Philip Kerr fan? I can't remember if you're a Bernie Gunter reader. Um, I've read I've read a bit of it. Yeah. Yeah. He's done. He's done. It's the man. A man without breath is is the one based around this. It's absolutely yeah. fantastic. It's so good. I mean, he does do his research really well. So he gets it. You get a real yeah. sense of the flavour of it, which is obviously a yeah. deeply unpleasant flavour. Yeah. But, yeah. but yeah. absolutely brilliant. But yeah, I mean, the cat in Masco. It's it's one of those ones that's. Um, you know, I think by August nineteen forty four. The Poles are kind of starting to believe the Soviets completely, you know, so it's not yeah. it's just not an issue. I mean, it's part it's part of a, a you know, it, it's one ghastly thing out of a giant picture of everyone knows. I mean, in Poland, everyone knows exactly what the Nazis are like. Um, they, they, they just haven't quite the penny hasn't quite dropped as to how bad the Soviets are. And um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, it, it was part I'm sure, Sam, it was part of the big of the big picture of what it, of how horrendous it was to be under the Nazis. And if the Soviets convinced people that the Katyn massacre was a Nazi atrocity, that they've got lot they've got lots to go on to believe that is the truth. Uh, you know, when you've already you but by the why the Warsaw Uprising, you've already had the ghetto purged and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I mean it's anyway. Um It's worth reminding you that one in four Poles are killed in the Second World War. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's it for today. All that cheery notes. <laughs> oh, God. Blimey. 
Our next podcast is out on Thursday when we got the second half of a brilliant chat with Guy Walters. Very, very interesting um, chat with Guy. Um, moving away from hunting evil to um, where does the Second World War sit in our cultural and national imagination? Um, that's the that's the essay title if we were writing an essay. And then we're back live streaming on Thursday evening at 8.30pm. Brilliant to see so many who joined us for that last week. And thanks again for joining us yesterday. Uh, well, it was yesterday because we're making this on Monday. Gonna, on Sunday. We're going to be doing a, a, v, a VE Day special, aren't we, on Friday? I think we're going to try and put something together for VE Day as well. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Uh, but, but live streaming Thursday evening, 8.30. And we've got an interview lined up with the author of The Rat Line and East West Street, um, Philippe Sands. That's happening later this week. And we'll hope to get that to you sometime next week, we think. Auf Wiedersehen for you, Tommy's The Voice. Over! Cheerio! Cheerio!